Yo Napo, dear listeners, this is World Politics Program. I'm Sonia, and joining me today in the studio are Federica, Sasha, and Sebastian. Today's topic is tough, yet really important to discuss now. It has been five years since the revolution in Ukraine led the country to the victory of a regime, but also marked the beginning of long and tiring Russian and Ukrainian conflict. I'm talking about Euromaidan. Today we will try to get deeper into the topic, but firstly it's worth looking at the history of Ukraine that preceded the current situation. In 19th century Europe, the question of national self-determination became especially significant. Revolutions in France as a sign of national unity growth, so-called Risorgimento in Italy, the process of Italian unification, unification of Germany, Western European moods influenced Ukraine greatly, and Ukrainians are known for their strong will to find national self-determination. In the end of 19th century, many nationalist circles emerged in Ukraine. And we need to remember that back at that time Ukraine was a buffer between two empires, Austro-Hungarian Empire in the West and the Russian Empire in the East, actually without exact borders of Ukrainian state. It is obvious now that such rebellious people as Ukrainians at one point would decide to separate from two big brothers. So when in 1890 Ukrainian Radical Party was organized in Ukrainian Galicia, which was a part of Austro-Hungarian Empire, Austro-Hungarian authorities even started supporting Ukrainians. In the beginning of 20th century, Ukrainian nationalist movement became particularly strong and radical. Ukrainian People's Party was especially xenophobic with their slogan Ukraine for Ukrainians and strong hatred towards neighbor nations who were seen as invaders. However, things changed greatly during and after the First World War. In 1918, finally, Ukrainian People's Republic emerged on the map of Europe as an independent state. But four years later, USSR was formed And again, for 70 years, Ukraine lost its independence. In the first Soviet years, Ukrainian culture enjoyed a widespread revival due to Bolshevik concessions known as the policy of Koreanization, which meant indigenization. Sorry, Sanya, can you explain better this concept? Uh, yes, sure. Uh, it meant that in those years, a program uh, was implemented throughout the Republic and the idea of the program was to motivate Ukrainian people find their national self-determination. Although in such conditions, the Ukrainian national idea initially continued to develop national consciousness, which provoked the development of a new generation of Ukrainian cultural and political elite. This in turn raised the concerns of Stalin, who saw danger in such loyalty towards the Ukrainian nation, as it could compete with their loyalty to the Soviet state. So, in early 1930s, the Ukrainian bourgeois nationalism was declared to be the primary problem in Ukraine. Their Ukrainization policies were bloodily reversed. Most of the Ukrainian cultural and political elite was arrested and executed and nation was devastated with the famine called the Holodomor, which comes from the words Marit Golodom, meaning killed by starvation. About the same time, in 1929, one of the most prominent parties 
Ukrainian Nationalist Party was organized by Stepan Bandera. His name emerged again in 2014, when, once again, Ukraine tried to get rid of Russian influence and obtain its national independence. For now, we have to leave you for a short musical break, and after that, we will tell you more about current situation in Ukraine. Welcome back, dear listeners, and we are continuing with our topic about Ukraine and conflict of 2013-2014. Sebastian, I believe you have something to tell us about Ukrainian foreign policy that preceded the conflict. Yeah, exactly, because I think that if we want to clearly understand why there is there is this war and so many foreign countries that want to be involved in what has happened and what is happening in Ukraine, we have to get larger pictures about this country. Um, as you say, the f- Ukraine is about, unfortunately, not being a country. I would say that this is the same kind of history that Poland had and that's that's a really new country I would say uh, even if the story is great but uh, what I want to, to say is that actually in our modern world Ukraine is really important for foreign country of course we know that this is about European Union and about Russia but I, what I want to say is and what you have to know is that Ukraine is important for three main reasons the first one and I think you girls and especially you Russian girls know what I mean. Um, for Russia, Ukraine is really important because there is this is the highway from the Russian gas market to Europe. And when you know that 50% of uh, European gas consumption is from foreign countries, you know that's really important. What you have to know about gas is that in, on our modern world, there is not a worldwide gas market only a few ones for example the northern american market for gas and of course the european one because this is a resource resources which is really difficult to transport the only way to do it is not the only way but i would say the more common way to transport it is to use gas pipeline and of course from russia to european union most of the pipeline go through Ukraine. So now you can see that there, there is one major issue about Ukraine. This is not about a natural resource. This is about the way and how you can control the, the country and who can control the, the access to this natural resource. Uh, another thing that not many people know about Ukraine is uh, its importance for the production of food. That could seems to be and not a huge topic but actually this is really important because during the last years we've seen all around the world unfortunately since 2007 and the Hungary riot in Mexico Egypt Haiti or even Kazakhstan that food is becoming a huge topic and especially for modern society like European Union, because we can hit as much as we want, but in the future, there will be more and more people unhurt, and the resources will be the same. So what you have to know about Ukraine is that this is one of the biggest cereal producers in the world. For example, actually, this is the third global exporter for corn and the fifth for cereal. 
And actually, experts think that the production can even double. Can I ask you something? Why do you think uh, Ukraine is one of the most uh, producer of uh, food? Actually, I don't believe it. That's uh, the statistic. And the question is really import important about why Ukraine has more capacity to produce um, cereal. Uh, this is because of... I mean, uh, in your opinion, is um, because of uh, the structure of the country, the weather? That's because of the geology. Because there is... Yes. In the, actually, this is in the north and eastern part of Ukraine. There is really fertile lands. Uh, they are known as Chernozem which is the name of this kind of land, um, which are basically situated between the Caspian Sea and the Azov Sea, which is basically the Black Sea, but the part between Russia and Crimea. I mean, between Russia and Russia. Yeah, so there, there is this really fertile land. And another thing um, is to know that when you just look at how many lands you can cultivate in Ukraine, the total amount of this kind of land uh, is approximately a, a third of the actual cultivable land in European Union, which represents a huge market and a huge opportunity. And that's why we've seen that there was many foreign investment in Ukraine for food production. So that's, that's the second point about Ukraine. Another one is the strategic importance of Ukraine, because this is the open gate for Eastern country to the Black Sea, So to the Mediterranean Sea and after that to the Atlantic Sea. And that's really important. For example, we have seen it during the crisis in Syria and the importance of having ships in the Mediterranean Sea to support or attack a country. So basically for Russia, and this is all about the story of Russia and Crimea and Ukraine, this is an open gate to the sea. Ukraine is really important as a strategic place. Uh, for example, during the Cold War, we have seen that Ukraine was one of the countries in which the nuclear weapon, weapon of Russia have been storage, because that was the closest country, one of the closest and safest countries uh, for Soviet Union. Uh, yes, and for example, uh, Sevastopol uh, city in Crimea is the main uh, Russian uh, seaport on the Black Sea, and it used to be even a Even it used to be a closed city during Soviet era, so you, uh, like, uh, you had to have a special permission to enter that city. So it's really very important. The thing is that Ukraine is really important for Russia as a strategic point, but this is the same for European Union. I mean, the foreign country or union who got, I would say, the power over Ukraine got the access to the other one. And the thing is that. Since 2004, almost all the ex-Soviet Republic of, of Eastern Europe has joined the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is, just a little reminder, a military organization created after the Second World War to counterpower Soviet Union nuclear power in Europe. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, NATO has just lost any meaning without a common enemy to fight against. And I will continue to talk to you about this in a couple of minutes because I have Sonia which is walking <laughs> no, which is looking at me like really angry and she wants me to make a break. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the War Politics prog program and uh, we were talking about uh, Ukraine and um, his um, 
geopolitic and uh, the reason why is uh, strategic for other countries and uh, I want to let the word to Sebastian who was talking about this and uh, then uh, we uh, we will go more deeper to the Euromaiden. So we left you at the moment of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the behavior of NATO uh, in Eastern, Eastern Europe country. Uh, the fact is, since a couple of years, uh, NATO has asked many countries uh, to join uh, this its organization. And for Russia, that feel like an aggression. And I might be wrong. You will correct me, Sonia, Sasha. But no, I think you. No, I would agree with you. Yes, me too. Because uh, yeah, it's um, dangerous for Russian borders, and you know. Yes, you know, uh, Russia is a big and a big country with strong imperial ambitions, doesn't want to have a mutual border with country close to NATO or European Union because we are, we, in, I mean, not me, but in Russia, uh, for Russian authorities and for Russian power, NATO is seen as a main, main enemy. Yeah, and maybe that's because of the Bush administration we, who started to use again NATO as an aggressive tool to counterpower some countries. Because basically after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was no point for NATO anymore. So they had to find another common enemy. And Russia, since Putin arrived at power, became again that enemy. What we have to know is since 2004, USA have started to develop a counter system against Russian missile uh, and I mean nuclear missile which means that the idea so that means that at the end of the day Russia will be without any nuclear nuclear uh, shield so oh it's very interesting I didn't know about that yeah actu actually there is no so this is not official nobody is really sure about Uh, where is actually this project, if it's activated, is, if it's working or not. But that's a fact that uh, NATO is deploying many stations in uh, Eastern Europe country. So basically for Russia, that will mean that NATO is basically trying to destroy this nuclear shield, which is the base of the balance power in modern diplomacy. And I think maybe that's why Russia don't want at any point cost that Ukraine became another NATO country. Yes, because this uh, is Russia's like zone of influence. So, but I as far as I know and as you said, it's not like clear and it's not officially approved officially declared that there are NATO stations. Actually, yes, that's official. Oh, that's official. The, the question Then we have to cut this off. <laughs> no, 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 that's interesting. But the question is about if the project, this counter-missile project, is actually working or not. That's the, all, the whole question. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, Americans are saying, yeah, that's working. So you can try oh. to shut us. No way, that will not work. But yeah, it's like North Korea saying that they have... Like, yeah, exactly. Brackets, but that's kind of pressure. But we know that when you are looking at the technology, that's possible. The only question is when will it be possible or is that already? But anyway, you don't want to mess around with the, you know, things like this. 
That's why, yeah. Mm. Uh, but going back to the topic of Ukraine. <coughs> so, yes, Ukraine again is um, between, you know, two big brothers, let's say, European Union and ATO and Russia. And as I see, the conflict of 2013 was preceded by certain events that are closely that are linked to this the relationship between Europe and Ukraine. In order to achieve this target for foreign country, I would say that there is some way for them to to try to become a, a partner, a long-term partner uh, for Ukraine. And one of them that's interesting was at the origin of the Maiden Chris. And I think that was about some economic agreement. Yes, it is known that u- Ukrainian governments tried to build a closer relationship with the European Union since the beginning of the 21st century. And one of the measures meant to achieve this meant to achieve this was an association agreement with the European Union which would have provo- provided which would have provided Ukraine with funds. We will come back with this topic after a little musical break. Welcome back dear listeners. Uh, we are talking about uh, Ukraine and uh, now we we are going to talk about uh, uh, Ukraine and uh, its relationship with the uh, European Union and uh, I want to let uh, the word to Sasha. Thank you very much Federica. Uh, yeah, as you can see by now this topic is much more complicated when it could may than it may seem. Uh, yeah, and I want to go a little bit deeper into the details of the association agreement between Ukraine and European Union. Uh, because as you may know, it was the main reason for Euromaidan. Well, uh, because you may know that uh, the fact that Ukrainian president um, rejected the signing of this association agreement had become a reason for uh, Euromaidan and protests and other uh, events that happened later. But anyway, let's start with agreement. Mm. <coughs> uh, do you guys know that uh, there is a Eurasian economic community Uh, I, I mean, Sonia probably knows. Yeah, sure, I know. But uh, Federica and Sebastian, do you know about that kind of thing? Yeah. Yes, we know. Uh, so you then probably know that um, there is a union between uh, countries, such countries like Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and previously uh, there was uh, Tajikistan as well, but not not anymore um, and uh, uh, this organization is similar to European Union and uh, it has uh, the same four freedoms of movements that European Union has its uh, goods capital services and people so basically uh, you can uh, move goods and uh, capitals and services and people uh, Uh, between these countries uh, well uh, and what you should know is that while negotiating on the associa- association agreement with EU 
Yanukovych was also trying to develop a right strategy to become a part of Eurasian economic community. Because, you know, Europe and Russia were the biggest trade partners of Ukraine. So basically, uh, Yanukovych wanted to participate in both organizations. Like Yanukovych wanted wanted Ukraine to become a participant of both both of these organizations. So you mean Ukraine wanted to be friends with everyone? Yes, because uh, they want to uh, trade with uh, Russia and Europe. So basically, uh, uh, during those periods, during that time, um, Europe and Russia were like equally sharing uh, the trading like they were pr- pretty much equal yes uh, in terms of trading with ukraine mm-hmm. and i heard that in both side uh, from european union and from russia there was an offer of credit to the states of ukraine a big amount of money which was a huge part of this discussion about joining one side or another one no Yes, exactly. It influenced, I believe it influenced uh, the decision of uh, Yanukovych a lot. I mean, the decision that that he decided to uh, postpone the signing of the agreement. Uh, But let us go a little bit deeper into the details of this agreement. Uh, Some analytics supposed supposed that uh, becoming a part of Europe uh, could be not the best decision for Ukraine. Uh, because um, it could make this uh, country more agrarian and uh, um, natural resources oriented. Plus, it may kill some uh, well-developed industries, uh, some telecom and even space industry, which used to be in Ukraine. Uh, plus, some researches show that it could cause a decrease in budget profit from 10 to 15 percent each year. Um, Eric Reinert, a Norwegian, a famous Nor- Norwegian economist, said that there is no equ- equality between partners in the association agreement, and it has some controversial theses. According to them, in case uh, Ukrainian industry disturb European one, then some restrictions could be implemented, for example, uh, for export of products. Uh, but, you know, um, not many people went into details of this agreement. Um, anyway, I think Yanukovych had some reasons to not cancel but postpone the signing of this agreement. Uh, but again, it's much more complicated, and there are some uh, things that really, to my mind, influenced his decision. And we will continue after a short break. And we are back to talk about our Ukrainian topic about the revolution. And Sasha has been just telling us many things about this trade agreement from both Russia and European Union. And you wanted to tell us about other reasons. Yes, indeed. And I just wanted to add a couple of little things, especially about, you know, this Yanukovych decision to go to the Russian agreement. And one interesting thing is to know that more than this trade agreement from both sides, Russia and European Union, there was 
in the in the Brussels another offer from the International Monetary Fund, which was actually to give to Ukraine 15 billions of dollars. So this money was to help Ukraine to reimburse the national loan. And actually Russia and Putin made exactly the same offer to Ukraine. So equality in the both parts. But the International Monetary Fund asked if Ukraine accepted to be part of this free market with the European Union to put in place some huge reform in Ukrainian society. And most of it, that was to increase the price of gas, which would have mean that Ukrainian industry and most of it Ukrainian people could not afford to pay for gas, which would mean social crisis in Ukraine. And we have already seen the effect of this kind of reform, for example, in Greece and again because of the International Monetary Fund. In the other hand, Yanukovych had an offer from Putin, which was to decrease the Russian gas price by a third, which means, of course, good things for Ukraine. And maybe that was a part of the final decision. And yes, and yet, as Sasha has already told, that people, I mean, Ukrainians, they didn't go this deep into all the conditions and obstacles with this agreement. So when President Yanukovych first announced his intention to sign the agreement and then at the last minute refused to do so, it led to a great social discontent, which eventually grew to protests. Protests started in the end of November 2013 and at first were bloodless. Actually, it's worth mentioning that it was the beginning of the third Ukrainian revolution since the collapse of USSR. And both of the first two were held on Maidan Nizalezhnosti, which is translated as Independence Square from the Ukrainian language. The first revolution happened in 1990, and the second one was Orange Revolution that happened in 2004. This revolution that began in November of 2013 now is called the Revolution of Dignity because Ukrainians fought for their right to be free and independent. And in the beginning, protests were bloodless, although this drastically changed in February when protesters and police clashed. Special police units violently and cruelly started to suppress protests. Russian media presented the conflict as mostly fueled by nationalists, so-called Banderovci, who were successors of Stepan Bandera, and they were believed to be supported by European Union and NATO, as it was presented in Russian media. In this way, the image of Ukrainians made by state media started to get more and more anti-Russian traits, and Ukrainians were eventually seen as traitors. So it was uh, a war in media at that period of time. And yeah, um, as I know, in uh, Ukrainian media, so they like fueled the situation as well, because on TV they showed the pictures of the, uh, the violence against students. I mean, okay, they showed it, but they underlined the situations. They wanted people to become angrier and angrier, if you know what I mean, make the situation worse. But I think uh, that media, of course, played uh, a role in that process, uh, why a peaceful protest turned into a bloody revolution. And of course, as you, Sonia, said, that the main event after which everything changed, it was the violence against students peaceful protesters but also first of all it happened because of very wrong decisions made by Yanukovych I mean uh, that he was wrong in uh, trying to deal with the situation oh yeah just believe that the government that the 
official power had to make some concessions. Yeah, he actually agreed on some demands from protesters, but he wasn't prepared. I mean, I think that he was shocked by the situation. Um, actually, I don't think that we can justify the violence that was on Maidan. I don't try yes, to yes, I know, justify but, but, it, not at all. Even even if he tried to make concessions, they killed people. People yeah. were dying. Yes, of course. And because of this barcodes. Barcode, uh, I think it was a very uh, it caused by very wrong decisions uh, made by Yanukovych and of course the actions uh, made by Berkut and uh, plus it was uh, a strong influence now of radicals who arrived from western part of the country as you said again plus to that I heard an opinion that after orange revolution that happened in 2004-2005 people felt disappointment and some people said that orange revolution hadn't not come to anything because victory had been achieved without a real struggle with no blood and no fatalities so uh, maybe it also played some role in this process thank you very much sasha uh, just a little break and uh, we We'll came back. Dear listeners, we are back talking about Euromaidan and Ukrainian-Russian relationship. Although we're talking about power, authorities and states, it's important to remember that first of all, Euromaidan and any revolution is about people. And Sasha, I know that you know a story from a witness of revolution in Ukraine. Uh, yes, thank you, Sonia. And, um, you know, guys, uh, this topic is not the easiest one to discuss and uh, um, everybody has their own point of view. And especially it is very difficult to discuss because we get some information from media. Sometimes media tries to manipulate people, as we Always can see. Always tries to manipulate. Yes, and yeah, the... Uh, story of uh, Euro Maiden shows us how it could be successful in the end. Uh, but um, I believe mm. in stories told me by real people, and uh, I have a story to share with you. This story is from person I know. I worked in international company, and um, we work very closely with our Ukrainian colleagues. We had become friends. That's why I have many friends in Ukraine and uh, it's kind of a painful topic for me as well because of them. But first I'd like to ask you, have you ever been to street protests? Yes. Yes. I'm not sure, but probably. <laughs> <laughs> Then you might know the feeling of being there fighting for a truth you believe into. Uh, I wanted to go actually to Euromaidan during those days but I couldn't uh, for some reasons. Anyway I watched uh, reports from the streets but this is a real story from the very first hand. I will read it to you. Over the past week many controversial events have happened which I will remember forever. I will never forget that Saturday morning when my sister called me and told me about the bloody dispersal. I will never forget the panic when I heard the explosions of grenades near the administration in Kyiv and barricades. But on the other hand, I will keep the most incredible feelings when you are right up on the street, united with a million of people. 
If you are afraid of reading news, if the first thing you grab every morning is the phone, if you are trying to find out if there was another bloody crackdown, you should be here on the streets. You will feel here more peacefully than anywhere. The situation is difficult to describe. A lot of people came here to help because they sincerely believe and are ready to do everything they can. Just short stop here to to tell that that girl she worked uh, there on Euromaidan uh, as a volunteer uh, and at the kitchen there was a kitchen uh, provided free food for those who stayed there who spent their days and nights and uh, the food was collected from all the country because people supported uh, this action in different ways so they worked they volunteered at that kitchen self-organization is amazing people cut bread pour tea clean garbage and make sandwiches each in its own style you can find here anything what your heart desires bacon herring sausage cucumbers we got the most simple task to make sandwiches with sala which is you know very traditional ukrainian food it's uh, pig fat mm, salted You should try it, guys, I think. <laughs> We sang the national anthem twice. You cannot imagine what feels a person who has perceived most of the national components as paths or manipulation for the last few years. And then all the people together started singing the national anthem. And then you feel it deep in your heart. No one knows what will happen next, but it's very important for me to say thanks to the people who are around. Thanks to friends who care about me, constantly call me and ask what's going on, how am I? And even sometimes they take you by a hand and go with you right to your home and even to a door of your apartment, just to be sure that you are safe. Thanks for those who are not indifferent, who are not afraid to come and support and at the same time not paying attention to the news, like fake news. Special gratitude and deep respect to journalists who are beaten but come back with cameras and microphones knowing they are like a red flag for Berkut. All of this shows us one thing, we are not afraid and it causes my deepest respect. I'm grateful to all who do not lie to themselves, who are not afraid and not stay indifferent. I'm just starting to get used to such a new concept as people, and I'm proud to be a part of it. Incredible feeling. So that was the story, and I hope you can not only know, but also feel what was going on there during that street protest on Maidan. Thank you very much for this story. That was really interesting and first time I hear this kind of testimony. So thank you very much for sharing it with us. And You are welcome. And we will make just a little break of music. Welcome back, dear listeners. And we are continuing with the topic of Ukraine. But going back from people's stories to politics. In February of 2014, President Yanukovych had to leave Ukraine and flee to Russia. At the time, Russia refused to recognize the new interim government and allegedly began a military intervention in Ukraine, which was not officially declared in Russian media. But there are evidences, photos and videos with so-called little green man or 
polite people, as they were called, because they were really polite and calm. Who were they? Well, actually, they were masked soldiers in unmarked green army uniforms without insignias, and they were carrying modern Russian military weapons and equipment, which leads us to conclusion that there were Russian troops in Crimea. And only in April of 2014, President Putin had to declare and admit that there were indeed troops of Russia in Crimea. The reason for intervention was the desire of Russian government to protect Russian people who live in Crimea. Exactly five years ago, the referendum took place in Crimea, and this referendum resulted in later annexation. It is worth mentioning that the majority of population in Crimea ethnically is considered to be Russians with only a little part of Crimea Tatars whose opinion actually didn't bother anyone at that time. I don't mean it's good. It is known that for a long time Russian people living in Crimea wanted to become a part of the Russian Federation. At that point, in March 2014, I think Russian government decided that it was a good time, you know, to intervene when there are some protests in Kiev, in the capital, to annex a part of a neighbor country. The referendum took place on March 16th of 2014, and 97% of voters chose to leave Ukraine and join Russia. I need to explain you where this controversy comes from and why does this question exist the question of Crimea between Russia and Ukraine. Actually, before 1954, Crimea was the part of Russian Soviet Republic. In February of 1954, Nikita Khrushchev, who was at that time the first secretary of Communist Party, decided to give to transfer Crimea territory to the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. However, and it's known, according to article of the Constitution, the presidium that issued that decree did not have an authority to do so. Later, the constitutional change to accommodate the transfer was made, but only several days after the decree was issued. So basically, there are some legal issues, some discrepancies that uh, later allowed Russia to claim the territory of Crimea. Although, of course, we have to remember that, for example, in 1994, Russia, Ukraine signed the memorandum which stated that they would respect the mutual borders, independence and sovereignty of these countries. Although, in my opinion, five years ago, the question of Crimea wasn't only about the territory, but it also was Putin's move to show his power and sort of the way to intimidate nationalists, maybe, I don't know, an ATO. And also, um, as you may know, that Sevastopol is uh, like very important for Russians, not just because it's a military base, but also Russian society in general never accepted the loss of Sevastopol. They tended to regard it as temporarily separated from Russia. It's kind of a sacred place for older generations who were raised in the USSR. I heard those. We have to return Sevastopol. Sevastopol is ours, you know, uh, before all that situation. And after uh, Putin 
and next Crimea, uh, his rating raised very fast. And uh, even those who never voted to Putin, they voted to him just because of Crimea, because it was like a thing to unite the nation. I've recently found out that the majority of Russians are really supportive of this annexation, which is surprising to me because mm, I think in my circle, in my environment, people are strongly against this intervention that happened. But just numbers, okay? For example, in March of 2014, 57% of respondents say that they absolutely support the reunion with Crimea. And in March of 2018, so one year ago, 53% of respondents support you mean, the unification. You mean... What's it doesn't happened? change. It doesn't change. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't change. Mm. Yeah. Like, the, the numbers are pretty much the same, which is surprising and disappointing for me. But, you know, it depends on your point of view again because uh, you can call it annexation okay from the point of view of uh, international law it is but if we um, as you told us the story about Crimea that they really wanted to become Russia and they wanted to they that's asked the that's uh, for sure. authorities for several times to like review the borders uh, and they re I do believe they voted to become Like, again, from the point of view of national law, it is illegal. I agree with that. Uh, from the point of view of a person who lived there, for example, and went and voted then, probably it's, again, much more complicated than it seemed to be. I see both sides. Thank you, girls, for this interesting discussion. Now... Um Just a little break and uh, we come back with uh, another topic uh, related to Crimea. Welcome, dear listeners. We continue to talk about Crimea, Ukraine, Crimean crisis and Ukrainian-Russian relationship after 2014. And as we have already touched the topic of media, I think it's uh, interesting for us and for our listeners to know What was the reaction of European media and how was the conflict presented, for example, in France, Sebastian? You have to know that in France um, we had this huge discussion because most of the people, I think, actually support or has been supportive to Russia about this question. Not because they know about all we just said and most of it about uh, the, the historic thing, but just because we are French and we just like to react against something. And most of the French media, and I would say all the French media, have been showing Russia like the enemy. Really, that was, that was the point of this media, showing that Russia is an aggressive country who just want to conquer all Europe and mistreat people, act if that was still Soviet Union. And that was actually pretty sad because there was no analysis of the of the situation of what was really going on and what was the story of Ukraine and all this kind of thing. For example, I just discovered the existence of this free trade agreement on discussion when I was preparing with you this topic. I never mm -hmm. heard of it and 
no no media in France has ever talked about this topic, which I think is huge because this is the origin of the crisis and the maiden protestation. So I would say, unfortunately, yeah, in France, that's pretty sad because all this media has been have just been presenting Russia and Russian people as aggressive and they just wanted to annex another country without any reason. And if I can say how works in Italy, it's uh, pretty the same. I mean, um, this is not a main topic in Italy. Uh, mm, it's course. not so discussed. But uh, uh, when uh, it is discussed, uh, um, Putin seems to be uh, like the devil of the situation and uh, seems like um, he made the worst uh, thing could ever make and uh, uh, it seems like an invader uh, it seems like uh, someone who doesn't matter about people doesn't matter about uh, uh, legal actions uh, but uh, actually I am not uh, with Putin, absolutely, because uh, I know that uh, he made uh, an illegal action. But uh, Crimean people feel like Russian people. They voted him. They voted him and they want to be part of Russia. Uh, yes, I'm sorry, Frederick, for interrupting you. Other question is, how did they, I mean, how did they make this decision? Did they really do it voluntarily or did they... Uh, were they under pressure? I mean, yes, just... In my opinion, maybe they they didn't vote Putin. They vote for Russia because they feel themselves uh, like Russians and they want to be part uh, of Russia. Maybe this is the real reason of their vote. M maybe... Plus... Uh, mm, I'm sorry, Sebastian. Keep going, Federica, I will just... Just finish. Plus, uh, of course, uh, media uh, that are not so uh, clear and want to manipulate uh, the thinking of the people. Of course, we agree in this. Maybe just you've said that people have been not voting for Putin, but for Russia. But maybe they have just been afraid uh, about what was going on at, at this moment in Ukraine. Because just the Nationalist Party... Uh, just obtained some ministry uh, post and most of it the um, the one for education and there there was this law which was passed which says that Russian is no more the second official language in Ukraine and there was huge change and for these people who just speak Russian and I don't know any Crimean people but what I've heard they speak Russian they have kind of culture of Russia, the Russian culture, and this kind of flow from Kiev seems to be the beginning of an, I would say, hunt against them. So they had to protect themselves, and the best way was to being under the protection of another country. I want, uh, yeah, um, Sebastian, you're absolutely right, and uh, really this um, situation was used by media a lot yeah to frighten people and to you know because uh, according to at least the um, data that we have uh, almost uh, almost everyone went to the uh, voted i mean um, people stood up went to the street they voted and it was like 97% of people who voted to become 
a part of Russia again. But of course, can we imagine it could happen uh, like such a unification of people uh, without uh, an influence of media, of yes. course. Mm. And, and I'm sorry, guys, I've probably mentioned it, but a small but yet living part of population in Crimea is um, Crimean Tatars. They are not Russians, they are not Ukrainians, mm -hmm. and their opinion was just omitted. So Yeah, and actually they are those who are against Uh, in general, mm, yeah, I mean against um, Russia. But yes, talking about media, media sometimes manipulates our opinions and presents the truth in a way that it is profitable for authorities, for powers. Thank you guys for your opinions and for sharing with uh, uh, the listeners. Two minutes of break with uh, a music and we will come back. Hello dear listeners, we are back at our studio again and we continue discussing the topic of uh, Ukraine and uh, Euromaidan and what it cost. And I think that it's very important to talk about what's going on right now on the east of Ukraine. Uh, there is a war, uh, as you know, and Federica is going to tell us more about this topic. Thank you very much, Sasha, for introducing me. Uh, yes, I'm going to talk about uh, what uh, in Europe, or correct me if I go wrong, in Europe we call it uh, the Forgotten European War, right? We, we don't have any expression about it in France. Okay, maybe only in Italy, because uh, as I told you before, it's not a so discussed uh, um, topic uh, the Ukrainian war and the Ukrainian conflict. And uh, I just want to make uh, a parenthesis about uh, this war that started on the March uh, 11th of uh, 2014 when Crimea and Sebastopol city declared their annexation to Russia with a referendum. This referendum, however, wasn't uh, acknowledged by the Ukraine, Europe and USA and uh, as the story tells us, uh, Vladimir Putin declared Crimea as part of Russia standing to the self-determination criterion. This war in the last four years caused over 10,000 deaths. This make uh, the Ukraine one the most bloody uh, war ever fought in Europe after the Balkans fought in the 90s and uh, one of the longer since one century to this part. I think uh, we should uh, talk a little about the condition of Ukraine people and country too because uh, the Ukrainian highway number 20 crossed the sunflower fields. Before the war, this highway was one of the symbols of uh, economic development. But today, the highway number 20 marks the border of two parts. When you run across it, you approach the city of uh, Avdiyevka. The city uh, when it's uh, fought the, the war. And you know, um, this city is uh, 20 kilometers far from the Donetsk stronghold and uh, is supported by Russian. So going on uh, become too dangerous. But despite of all, the day in uh, Avdiyevka 
seems to be quiet. It's only an illusion. The war is never too far, and sometimes you can listen to the weapons shoots and to the sound of uh, some explosions. We don't exactly know how is on the other side of the of the border because uh, the Popular Republic authorities uh, of uh, Donetsk rejected uh, the request to log into their territories to have um, a reportage. But uh, we know some stories. For example, uh, Alexander Zakarchenko um, is the proof that uh, this war is uh, very dangerous on the ordinary life. He was an architect. He was a um, self-proclaimed uh, leader of uh, separatist militants, but uh, he died due to an attack in a Dionets cafe. So this is uh, the real proof that uh, war is very dangerous in the ordinary life. And uh, I want to discuss another um, topic uh, uh, that is not so touched by media and uh, communication sources in general that is uh, the environmental consequence uh, that uh, this war is leading to um, so I want to talk uh, talk you a little about uh, Yevhen Yakovlev do you know guys about Yevhen Yakovlev uh, I haven't heard of him before, sorry. Me neither. Okay. He's a geologist and a researcher of uh, the Institute of uh, Telecommunication and Global Information Space of Kiev. And uh, he's famous because on March uh, the 1986, uh, one month before uh, Chernobyl nuclear disaster, received a rebuck from Soviet authorities after he reported the disturbing irregularities in the reactor number four, responsible of the biggest catastrophe of uh, civil nuclear ever known. After Yakovlev took part on uh, liquidators' brigades and he managed to, uh, to save himself without consequences and was drawn as the Soviet Union hero. So he's... Uh, he is a, a reliable source and maybe we can believe him if he say that uh, Ukraine is moreover an environmental catastrophe, more dangerous and deep of the Chernobyl one. Federica, I'm sorry. Now I have to interrupt you because we are going to make a small, to make a little musical break. But as we come back, we will be happy. We will, we will be glad to listen about the ecological consequences of Ukrainian war more. Welcome back, dear listeners, to our program about Ukraine and consequences of Ukrainian war. And Federica, I stopped you and I'm sorry. Now, please proceed. Thank you very much, Sonia, for introducing me to this topic. Uh, I take uh, this topic uh, on my heart because um, I am really interested on the environmental topic. And uh, I think uh, uh, nobody um, should for uh, forget uh, of uh, the environmental collapse. I was talking about uh, Yevhen Yakovlev and uh, he said that uh, thanks to this conflict and uh, its bombs are occurring high percentage of environmental damages and uh, this is a problem uh, that involves 
dangerous inundation of mines that crossed the two lines, Ukrainian and Russian, giving uh, in this way the possibility of uh, water reserve poisoning and the spread of uh, radioactive contamination with the risk of an environmental collapse. But uh, uh, the thing that uh, is more important than the others is uh, that uh, there is no international attention And uh, the Ukraine war, I repeat, is considered like a, a forgotten war. Also, the environmental problems uh, will be forgotten uh, with mm -hmm. uh, the Ukraine war. So what is happening and uh, has happened in Ukraine could bring some environmental problems uh, that must be considered as soon as possible. And uh, the environmental degradation show up uh, like pollution and droughts that are not picked up. And uh, this helps uh, the spread of diseases and water sources contamination. The ground and the water are polluted by unexploded toxic devices and the air is polluted by destroyed buildings and fire. In addition, another consequence is that uh, because of the war, less money are given to environmental services and uh, the government spends, uh, in fact, uh, too much money for war and in fields they think uh, are more urgent, like food and sanitary services. This is the reason why some of polluted places are left and nobody takes care of them. The conclusion is, is that if we don't take care as soon as possible of the problems of a Ukraine war, I mean the environmental problems, uh, people will take some diseases because of uh, poisoned water and uh, the polluted air. These diseases will uh, spread not only in Ukraine, not only in Russia, but uh, in the whole Europe. And uh, this makes uh, the Ukraine environmental problem bigger than Chernobyl one. This is my conclusion. Thank you very much, Federica, for such an unexpected and actually really sad prospective. But at this point, guys, we have to sum up and we unfortunately have to finish our program. Dear listeners, we hope you enjoyed our conversation about Ukraine and Ukrainian war. And <laughs> we will come back next week same time see you next week same place same hour same frequency goodbye ciao <laughs> bye